Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. Cornerstone Livermore. How are we doing today? Oh, it's so nice to see you. I am uh, so happy to be here with you. My name is Billy. I'm one of the pastors here. I mostly serve in Brentwood, but I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we're looking at this tremendously practical book in the New Testament, the book of James. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, okay? Same moms, different dad, okay? He was raised with Jesus. He was, he played with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. It was this environment that's so unique. And, uh, and the Bible teaches, though, as an adult, James backed off. He's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm denying that Christ is the Messiah. He pulled way back. So it's a very interesting story. By the way, about James, you should know something uh, because we're spending so much time with him. James is not his real name. Anybody know what James' real name is? Jacob. Ooh, free donuts over here for that whole section. <laughs> Jacob. Jacob. So in this twist of, of fate, of translation fate, uh, we, we, we went from Jacob to James. James is not a Jewish name. It's an English-sized name. That's not a word. It is now. And, um, and so when we trace it back to the 1300s, there was a Bible translator named John Wycliffe who took these old manuscripts in Latin and then he made an English translation of scripture. And James pops out, and so it never got fixed. It just kind of kept going. And then it really cemented itself in 1611 when King James authorized the King James Version of the Bible. Rumor has it that he put pressure on the Bible translators to leave the name James in so that his name could be in the Bible. I know, English monarchs, they're the worst, aren't they? Just total jerks. It's a good thing that we beat them back down in the 1700s because that all, that nonsense stopped, okay? But it's, it's a quirky thing. Uh, it kind of reminds me of one of the characters from the TV show Parks and Rec. Anybody know Parks and Rec, that TV show out here? Nobody? Thank you, Taylor. Yes, Parks and Rec, Jerry Gergich is a character. We don't know until season six that Jerry's not his name. And by then, nobody cares, okay? It's actually Larry. And it's a little bit like our James. At this point, we're just gonna go with it and we'll work it out when we get to heaven. It also is not critical to any kind of doctrine and so we just kind of roll with it. Now, our James eventually came to put his faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ. And then he went on to become one of the greatest leaders of the first century church, uh, fantastic. You know, if you look at how many millions of churches there have been in, in the last 2,000 years, James was the pastor of the very first congregation. 
the church in Jerusalem, and he was their lead pastor. So he offers us this incredibly unique vantage point in all these directions, and we're drawing that out in this series. So let's pick this up in chapter two. If you have a Bible, please, I invite you to open up to James chapter two. We're gonna read the first 13 verses. We're gonna unpack those and break those down a little bit today together. And I'm just gonna go ahead and start reading now. Verse one, chapter two. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, into your church meeting, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and then a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes into church. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, hey, where's the best seat? Here, let's sit in the best seat here at church. But then you turn around to the poor guy and you say, "Eh, you know, why don't you stand in the back over there? Or better yet, sit on the floor by our feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, verse five. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who loved him. But you've dishonored the poor. By the way, aren't the rich the same ones that are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are the rich not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Jesus to whom you belong? Wake up, James is saying. Come on now, wake up, guys. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by God's law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles on one point is guilty. It's just like you broke the whole thing. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery and also said, you shall not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you break one or the other. Listen, you're a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so very, very forthright passage. If you're hearing it for the very first time, you you get what this is saying right away. And by the way, how contemporary is this? How relevant is this message for today? So many people, I think, look at Scripture or the Bible and they think, oh boy, what an outdated, outmoded, ancient, antiquated book. It's got nothing to say to modern culture today. We're so sophisticated, right? But here we have James 2,000 years ago writing about a topic that we're living and battling and wrestling against every single day, are we not? So contemporary, so now, it's so needed for, for you and me today. All right, let me just summarize then what we just read. Here would be sort of the thesis of this section of text. It says, inside the church, James says, there should be no favoritism. So inside the community of believers, don't show favoritism to one particular social cultural group. Don't exclude one group over another. Specifically, he's talking about the economic groups, the poor. Don't exclude the poor and then turn around and exalt the rich. Because people who follow Jesus, here's what, we, here's what we're like, right? We don't exclude and we don't exalt. Do you see this in the book, in the, in the, in the passage? Do you see this as the thesis? Anybody? 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 Yeah? See this? Okay, this is me. So we, I like interaction, okay? 
This, no. This, amen. You know, give me something. Give me a bit of a, an affirmation. Thank you. Okay, that's how it's gonna be the rest of the sermon. I don't have to remind you. All right. This is James' teaching. It's two sides of a coin. Here, put this last slide up, please. Again, two sides of a coin. All right, we don't exclude and we don't exalt. So that means that it's not just enough to be inclusive of all people. We also shouldn't elevate specific groups based on superficialities. There's an interesting story from American history that kind of categorically fits what we're talking about. There was a a wealthy Ohio farmer named Taylor. And uh, he needed some help on his farm. It was a big farm. And so he hires a a young teenaged young man named Jamie. And part of Jamie's pay was to sleep in the barn, which was pretty par for the course in the 1850s. And Jamie, turns out, was a fabulous hire. I mean, this kid was such a hard worker. He was industrious. He was entrepreneurial. He showed great leadership skills. And over time, he basically kept getting promoted on the farm until he was head of over all the hired hands. He's running the farm alongside of, right underneath Mr. Taylor. So some more time goes by, and Jamie comes to Mr. Taylor, and he says, I have a confession to make, sir. I have fallen in love with your daughter, and she has fallen in love with me, and I'm here to ask you permission to marry her. But unfortunately, Mr. Taylor goes ballistic. He flies off the handle. Who do you think you are that you would come to ask for my daughter's hand in marriage? What kind of a, I mean, my daughter is up here. You're down here, all right? Who do you think you are, bud? And essentially, it ends the relationship. He fires Jamie. Jamie leaves the farm. He grabs his stuff and he never comes back. He never sees the daughter again. He never sees Mr. Taylor again. Fast forward even more years. Mr. Taylor's cleaning out that old barn. He comes to the place where Jamie was, used to sleep. He's kind of moving some straw around and he sees carved on one of the timbers an inscription. And he reads closer. And there, Jamie had carved his full name. James Abram Garfield. It dumbfounded Mr. Taylor to realize that this young man that he hired all those years ago had gone on to become the 20th president of the United States of America. He could have been the father-in-law to the president of the United States. Instead, his discrimination against the poor, Taylor missed out on being a part of one of the most effective leaders, the life of, the most, of one of the most nation's best leaders in our history. And this is the tragedy of discrimination and bias and partiality is that it does diminish the human spirit and it pushes people to the margins and that is terrible and it victimizes people for no good reason at all. And it also diminishes the biaser, the person who has it in his heart. You're you're actually missing out on enjoying the richness and the fullness of people that God has put around you. So here's the moral of the story. Don't be a tailor. Don't be a Mr. Taylor. Now, of course, if your name is actually Taylor over here, I'm not talking about you, but do you get what I'm saying? She does. Do you get what I'm saying? The Bible, thank you. Oh, you're so good. The Bible is so clear. James is, he's pushing this idea forward. He says, this is so interesting. He says that in God's wisdom and by his sovereign hand that God chooses the poor to be the receptacle, to be open to the message of the gospel. Here it is again. We just read it. Listen, dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? 
So first century churches, if we go back to our history, they were filled with people who were comprised on the stratosphere of Roman society, the lower end of, like, the poor people, the marginalized people, jammed the first century churches just full. I mean, fuller than we are in this room even. Just imagine this. Go back in time. And all around the Mediterranean Rim as the church exploded, it was the poor people, it was the disenfranchised people that were coming to Jesus. And so what James is saying here is like, hey, you would be wise, Christian person, to look at what God is doing and where he is working and go along with his program instead of superimposing your own. Now here's why the gospel message was so magnetic to the poor. Here's what the apostles and the church leaders were teaching. In Christ, we are all equals. In Christ, we are all equals. Here's the gospel. You're welcome. Here's the gospel. We are all equally sinful. Oh, this is, this is a tough thing, but, but this is the message of the gospel. We're all equally sinful, meaning that there's, there's not anybody that is like a better sinner than the next one, because we're all, we all stink. In fact, the Bible says you don't just stink, you're just dead. Spiritually, you're dead. And when you look at dead bodies, how do you gauge how dead someone is? Isn't dead just dead? It is. That's true. I know. Medical science has proven it. And spiritually, that's the way we are. And so we're all equally sinful, the scripture says. Regardless of the flavor of sin that we enjoy, we're all equals in that, but thankfully it doesn't stop there. Therefore, it says the Bible teaches, the gospel teaches us that we're all equally loved by God. We're all equally valued by Jesus Christ. And we're all equally saved by his redeeming, his redeeming work on the cross. That means his blood covers all of us equally, that there's not a favored status among the sinners of the world, and that when it comes to the gospel, we're equal in Jesus. He loves us all the same. He favors us all the same, and we're all equally justified in his sight by the power of the gospel. That is what the gospel teaches, and you know what? That message of equality, of every person, every human being being valuable before God caused the church to literally explode because where the society would devalue a person based on their birth, based on their wealth status, Jesus comes along and finds that person and lifts that person up on equal footing with everybody else. And that's what the church was like. When the culture pushes people to the margins and forgets people because they're born with the wrong race or they're born with the wrong background, right? Jesus walks along the edges of the fields and he finds all these people that are shoved there and he's like, hey, guess what? You've got, you've got my attention. You're the center of my attention. You're no longer on the edges. And he pushes us right front and center in his house. Those who've been forgotten, Jesus says, I know your name. I know your name and I'm calling you right now. Become my son and daughter. You're loved. You're mine. Oh my goodness. Amen. That is awesome. This was revolutionary in the first century. No one was teaching this message. The Christians were it. And so the church is just flooded with people. Now commentators have long noticed that James does not ever leverage his half-brother status to get any kind of special treatment. So if you go back to the beginning of the book, he introduces himself as James, a servant, a fellow servant, literally a slave. He's not name-dropping Jesus. Imagine if he had done this. By the way, do you know people who name-drop and who kind of do stuff like this? Oh my goodness, isn't that... 
You're like, oh, hey, uh, my name's whatever. My name's Bobby, and my dad is the CEO. And you just want to punch Bobby in the face, don't you, when that happens? Don't you want to punch him in the face? I want to punch him in the face. Hey, shut up, Bobby. What have you done? James doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, I'm the big shot super apostle and I grew up with Jesus and I had dinner with Jesus every night and Jesus asked my advice a lot growing up even though I was the younger brother, blah, 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 blah. That kind of approach would have been super annoying and it would have basically negated everything he's trying to teach here. Instead, he just calls all this stuff out. He's like, hey, that's discrimination. That's prejudice. Get rid of this from the house of God. My brothers and sisters, again, verse one, He's relating to us on a peer level. Believers and our glorious Jesus Christ would never show favoritism. Now, he goes on to teach that if we were to slip back into this kind of behavior, that he equates us with being just like the evil judges that were found in the Roman court systems. That's what verse four is all about. He's like, basically, if you were to do this, if you were to discriminate and show favoritism, would you not just become a judge with evil thoughts? So judges in Rome and in Israel, there were good judges and bad judges. Now the bad judges, they ruled their cases not based on witness and factual testimony and truth. They decided their verdicts based on one thing, taking bribes. Who would buy them off? And so if there were ever a court case, and there often were with a rich person and a poor person, guess who got justice and who didn't? Yeah, justice, okay, air quote that sucker. Yeah, that was just for the rich because they had the resources to buy off the the judge. The judges were evil. Everybody knew this was going on. Nobody could fix it. And so James just calls it out and says, that's evil. He says, listen, if you were to treat another person in such a way that would devalue their self-worth and it wouldn't be the way Jesus would treat them, that's the same thing as doing what the evil judges do. And so knock it off. Knock it off. Favoritism is forbidden. The people who follow Jesus, you and I, were to have no part in all this. All right, there's a positive example of how this plays out actually in scripture, and I wanna show it to you, where there's a church that's growing and it's made aware of an issue that kind of fits the category of what we're talking about. It creeps in and the leadership fixes it. If you have a, if you're still there, you can turn to Acts chapter six. I'm more gonna narrate this than read it, but you can follow along. This is now the church in Jerusalem still, but in the timeline, this is before James was the lead pastor. This was very early on right after Jesus had ascended, Acts 6, and the church in Jerusalem, this is the story. And the story goes like this. The church is exploding with growth. It's incredible, right? There's people getting saved and coming to Jesus in waves in and around Jerusalem. And it's awesome. I mean, we see this kind of growth and we're just so amazed by how God works. But with this growth, this scripture is very honest it talks about some problems that arose. Which, by the way, this idea of growth and problems, those things go hand in hand. This is kind of a truism in all of life. Growth brings problems. Does anybody see this in your life? Or just around things? Big companies grow and there's all kind of problems. Um, Growth brings problems like a growing church, a church like ours, Cornerstone. We've been growing, I think the last two years, around 10% a year. That's a lot of growth for a church. Doesn't seem like it maybe with some things, but in our category of church, that's a lot of growth. And, and that's amazing. And people are, are coming to Jesus and their lives are being restored. It's wonderful. But 
as we say kind of behind the curtain as pastors, we say, you know what? More people, more problems. Hashtag real talk. Can we just talk real talk for a second? Just real talk. We love all these people. All oh, the people are amazing, and what God is doing is incredible, but boy, they, everybody brings their problems with us. It just starts to pile up. More people, more problems. You see this in growing families, right? More kids, more problems. Amen? Can I get an amen? More kids to feed, more, kids, more fights to break up. I don't know. More arguments. I, I mean, it's just it's awesome, but it has a, you know, a flip side. Growing business, super great, but it comes with issues to solve that weren't there before. Problems of volume and scale and communication space, right? You name it. Growth brings problems. I live in the city of Brentwood, which is about 28 miles that way. Has anybody been to Brentwood? There's about four or five of you. Oh, many of you have. I am shocked. Uh, so Brentwood's an awesome city, but it's been growing like gangbusters these last five years or so after the recession sort of wore off. It's really cool to see all the new houses and all the, the new families that are there, and our church there is growing like crazy, and we're just seeing so much activity in life. But along with this growth... There's one thing that is, this pernicious thing has increased with that growth. Can you guess what that is? Did you say youth soccer? <laughs> hmm, let's think about that for a second. You may be onto something. No, it's not that. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking traffic. Traffic has increased, right? Traffic is Satan's invention. Satan invented in the pit of hell. He came up with this thing. Satan is alive and well in Brentwood, right? <laughs> Growth brings problems. All right, back to the story. There's all these Jewish people coming to Christ, but in the Jerusalem church, they weren't all together because essentially there were two types of Jewish people that lived in and around Jerusalem. There were the Hellenized Jews, and then there were the Hebrew-speaking Jews, Hellenized Jews spoke Greek. They were more familiar with Roman, Greco-Roman culture and uh, philosophy, thought, architecture, daily life. They sort of blended in a little bit better with, uh, with Roman life. They would be considered maybe the more metropolitan set amongst the Jewish people. And then you juxtapose those with the Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Hebrew-speaking Jews only spoke Hebrew. They were much more Israelite in their cultural context. In fact, many of the Hebrew Jews had, a, had an allergy, if you will, to Greco-Roman culture because they knew their history that when the Greeks came in in the intertestamental period, there was a lot of oppression, there was a lot of murder, there was a lot of, uh, of, um, of just bad, horrible things that the Greeks did to the Hebrews, and they didn't want anything to do with Greco-Roman culture. They wanted to stay separate from Greco-Roman culture. And so that was the backdrop. You had under the umbrella now of Jesus, you had these two types of Jewish people coming into the church. What do you think happened in that situation? Yeah, problems, friction, um, some stratification occurred. Now, this was a church that was led by the, the, the apostles. And there was an issue. Now, most people don't think it was overt bias or overt favoritism, but it just happened. This is a, this is a lesson for us. I think, just pause for a second. I think it would be wise for us to ask and if the ministry of the original apostles were, was experiencing this subtle, maybe inadvertent favoritism, let's ask, do we have that happening here in our midst, here at Cornerstone? 
even in really healthy churches, I think it's wise to ask the Lord to help us see our blind spots so that every single person who walks through our doors on any campus, in any neighborhood, they interact with us at any level, whether it's weekends or life groups or an event that we put on, they feel welcome, they feel cared for, they feel valued, and they feel loved, and nobody gets looked over. Amen. We've got to ask ourselves, is that happening here? This is the heart of God for people. And our, our heart, our goal is to reflect the heart of God. Well, here's how the apostles handled it. What they did was they promoted an entire brigade of new leaders who were all Greek. And this is really fascinating because the apostles were all of the Hebrew side of the church, right? They all had Hebrew names. But if you read very carefully in this passage, you'll see that the apostles, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, they appointed leaders who all had Greek names. And so what happened is they empowered a group that had become disempowered in their midst. So the church leadership saw. They didn't try to hide it. They didn't try to deny it. They didn't say, ah, well, it's no big deal, right? No, they saw that there was a concern and there was an issue and it was real, and so they fixed it. And what they did was they gave away authority so that the church could be better led as a group, as a whole, as a unitary, unified whole, so that nobody was left out. Nobody gets left out. Nobody gets left out in any church. Every single person gets their needs met equally. Every single person is cared for. Nobody gets looked over because of an externality. And you know what happened after this? It says that the church then exploded with growth again. And so once the needs were met of people and they felt valued again, there was unity in their midst and the church saw more and more people come to know Jesus. Guys, this is beautiful leadership. This is a vision of what an, a healthy Christian community is all about. And I can't help but think that as James was writing our verses that we've read here today, that he was thinking about the Acts chapter six story. Certainly he had heard about the history of his own church and that the leadership had put, had put leadership policies into place so that nobody felt disenfranchised or marginalized. I think that's a pretty cool thing. I think that's a pretty cool thing. And I hope we can do the same, don't you? Yes, I know we do. All right, let me just say it this way. Christians, my brothers and sisters, we treat each other as Christ treats us. Our treatment of others is never determined by a person's economic class, their age, their weight, their skin color, their attractiveness, their gender, their politics. We have to resist the things that divide us outside of the walls of the church. And whatever inclination resides in our own hearts to still hang on to that old stuff, we gotta get rid of it. We gotta chase it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. We just do. It's time to get real. It's time to get, get this sin out of our life. Amen to that. Having said that, we gotta ask ourselves, well, how do you do this? All right, we know who we are. We know human beings. I'm one of them, you're one of them. How do you live this out? And the, and the, the dilemma comes in this direction is that we, we tend to naturally drift towards people that we find easy to do life with. There are people who we find easy to be around, and then there are people who we find to be challenging around. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? 
the drift is always to be around people who are more like us. You're like this, I'm like this. It's just, it's just human nature. I'll give you an example personally. You guys know my personality type by now. I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the office nerd. I'm kind of the pastor, the geek type, the, the poindexter type. I tuck my shirt in, you know. The cool kids leave it all, hang, you know, hanging out and stuff. I just... I'm just naturally going to gravitate towards geeky things, geeky movies, geeky clothes. I have the same haircut since seventh grade. I mean, it's just, it's just never going to change. I've always been drawn to, to nerds. It's like I have like a nerd magnet. And it's just like right now even, it's just like, do-do, do You know, and... and <laughs> Okay, so a today example, there's a restaurant slash pub in Brentwood where every Thursday night is trivia night. And um, I love this. I love it for two reasons. First of all, at the restaurant, they serve a dish called sticky chicken. Think about that for just a second. Sticky chicken. This is the nicotine of chicken, okay? (laughs) This is juicy and sweet, and they put some kind of laced, I don't know, crack cocaine uh, derivative around it. It's, it's dope. It's straight dope, okay? It has to be. It's so good. Everybody in Brentwood knows what I'm talking about, all right? But that's one part of the, that I love about it. The second part is the trivia part, right? It's a part science and math and geography and, and, you know, nerd stuff. And then there's pop culture, which I'm really not good at, except for the comic book questions. But uh, nonetheless, I want to beat... Everybody else in the room, because beating people in knowledge games for me is really fun. I just really enjoy that. <laughs> and, um, and, and you should see when people are beaten by our tables, and they find out that I'm a pastor in town, and people literally don't know what to do with that, and I'm just like, come to church. Uh, everybody's welcome. <laughs> so, so, what, so what do we do? Uh, and I'm going I'm like to implicate Christy. She's got very little to do with this. But she, she and I, we, we get other nerds to join us on Thursdays, okay? It's like a rotating nerd club there <laughs> in the restaurant, right? And it's so enjoyable, and we have such a great time. And, and listen, I just want to tell you, there's nothing wrong with this. And you're like, no, no, bro, there's a lot wrong with that, okay? <laughs> Where do I start? I, I mean, biblically, there's nothing wrong with this, um, to have people that you enjoy being around who get you and, and you get them. Most of the time, our relationships, there's commonalities that we find with our inner circle of friends. It's like who we grew up with or in the same neighborhood, or the same college, or we have similar hobbies or our kids are at the same stage of life and we're trying to figure out you know, how to discipline teenagers, oh my goodness, or how to even feed them or just kind of you know, like work together. And, and so you naturally gravitate towards some of these commonalities. And that's not wrong. The Bible doesn't call that out. But here's what James is saying. He's saying, don't let your preferences become prejudices. Preferences aren't bad. In fact, that's part of what makes you uniquely you. But we cannot allow the things that draw us together with our inner circle of friends to be the same things that allow us to then marginalize other people who don't fit that criteria. That's anti-gospel. That's not the heart of God. Our preferences are our preferences, but when they become prejudices, this is when we seek to be, this is when we, um, this is when we become out of step with the Spirit. And so the Bible is like, 
watch that, think about that, and is that happening in your life, then, then walk away from that. That's not how God works. This is outside of the mercy that God has shown to us. All right, having said that, let's just walk through just a couple of things, practicals, that we can just live this out. Just to, if you're taking notes, this is when you would start. First is prayer. Is praying a very dangerous prayer. Lord, is there any place that I'm showing bias or partiality? And this has got to be an honest prayer. This can't be just, you know, we, Christians are good at dishonest prayers. Like, oh, well, I prayed the prayer, you know, once while I was listening to the radio and driving in traffic, and I really wasn't paying attention to what I was saying. No, no, this is where you've got to kind of go and get your life right with Jesus and allow him to speak to your heart. Is there a place that I'm treating someone or group, I'm writing them off, I'm boxing them out based on some kind of external superficiality? This is a, a dangerous prayer. I'm biased towards this type of person. And the Lord has to reveal that to your heart. Because if we're gonna obey Jesus, if we're really gonna live this out, it starts with you and me owning the junk that's in here. We got to own the junk that's in here. We gotta face it. We gotta say, in a minute, it's in here. And there's a type of person. I guarantee you there is at least one type of person that you, even inadvertently, would push to the edge. Even if you're more sensitized to this, you're like, well, Billy, no, I would push back on that. Even if you're more sensitized to this, listen, if you're intolerant towards the intolerant, guess what? You're still intolerant. So we've got to get honest. The second thing is, is we can't minimize it. We can't downplay, this is sin. He calls it out, doesn't he? This is sin in our life. And the human heart does this pernicious little thing, right? It, it does this, this deceptive thing. It tries to camouflage and understate sinfulness in our own lives. And James is saying, this is what we're doing here with, with this. He's like the propensity for this topic, especially. He, he says in verses nine through 11, he's like, basically, yeah, the person admits, okay, I'm biased, but it's not like I committed murder. It's not like I committed adultery. So what's the big deal? And he's like, eh, full stop. Full stop, friend. Sin is sin. If you sin in one area, even in your mind it's minimized, guess what? You're a lawbreaker and you're under the wrath of God and you need to fall upon the mercy of Jesus Christ to get rid of whatever it is that you're, that's, that's dragging you down. And this is an issue, he says, is especially elusive in terms of admitting it and getting rid of it. And we've got to really be aware of that. So this is James being James now. He's super, super duper, super duper duper forthright. The third thing is, go back to the basics. Love your neighbor. He elevates this. He calls it the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says it in verse eight. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is his half-brother taught this. You are doing right. This is how you treat people. Do this. Whenever you repent of sin, it's a two-fold process. It's that prayer. It's that owning it. It's like, oh my goodness, Lord, I didn't even know this was happening. I repent of it. But then you actually got to walk it out. It's not enough to just mentally ascend to it or just to admit it and then not change anything. You've got to seek the power of the Holy Spirit to walk it out. And that's what this step is, is to go do it. Now go love your neighbor. Yes, you can clap for that. That's worth clapping for. I think I would be clapping if I were you. By the way, 
You're not clapping for me. You're not clapping for me. You're clapping for God's word. You're clapping for this in our life, and you're saying, yes, this is what I want. And the final step here then is choose mercy over judgment. This is how he ends this section. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is verse 13. James is saying, remember the mercy that was shown to you. Remember before you met Jesus and then Christ came into your life. At that moment, did the Lord bring the hammer down on your life? Did he judge you for everything that you've done? Absolutely not. He rescued you. He ransomed you. And when you remember Jesus' mercy on your life and you remember his forgiveness on your life, James is simply saying, extend that to another person. Let mercy triumph over judgment. In other words, you can let mercy just basically, you can dam it up and stop the flow of mercy in your life and you can just suck it all up and be super narcissistic with it as a Christian. Or, he said, you can live the royal law of love and you can let mercy flow out of your life into the lives and hearts of others so that they feel valued by Jesus as well. Mercy is an incredible thing. What a terrible, broken world it would be with no mercy. Our lives are broken, and we all need God's help. So let's show that mercy to another broken person. Okay, that's the teaching. That's the teaching for today. What do you think about that? Yes, amen. Let's, let's just say a prayer, shall we? Let's start with the prayer part. Let's do, let's do that right. Just uh, bow your heads. Uh, you know, if you want to lift your hands up, you can't, but let's just focus on this for a second. So, Father, I pray on behalf of all of us that you would help us become aware of those subtle areas, those tricky areas in our own human hearts that maybe we would be saying, yeah, if I'm honest, I am actually excluding, I am exalting other people based on things I shouldn't be. So, Jesus, help us repent of that. Give us your grace now, and Lord, let us live out your royal law to love our neighbors as ourselves. I pray, Lord, that if a person comes in our midst into the environments of Cornerstone Christians, that every single person would feel loved and valued and cared for equally, that no one would feel less than, but everybody would feel welcomed. Thank you, Jesus, for such an amazing church. Help us, Lord, to reach those around us with the same revolutionary message as it was 2,000 years ago. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you, and we want to serve you to the full, and we leave nothing back, and we thank you for who you are. You showed us what it was like to leave nothing back on the cross, so give us the grace then to follow in your footsteps. Jesus, you're the greatest, and we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.